So I would like to, if you would look for a screen and find the original text for our series, I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me one more time. We're going to read one verse together. This one helps us keep what the whole book is about. It is our, what we call a series text. It is the key verse to all of Mark. In Mark, Jesus Christ is pictured as the great ox, the burden bearer. And this verse, Mark 10, 45, best depicts that. It's the key verse to this gospel. So let's read out loud. Here we go. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank You today for just the overwhelming awareness of all that You have already done for us. Lord, as we've learned in this series, we thank You that this is not about religious advice, something that we're, we can yet do, but it's about good news, the gospel, the facts of what has already been done. Jesus finished work. You said it is finished. God, thank You today that, Holy Spirit, You will move. In this service, You will touch hearts, open eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, You will convict, You will comfort, You will challenge you will stir, you will encourage, let faith arise in the hearts of your people, I pray, as the gospel goes out. As you personalize this, you custom fit it for every hearer in this room. Only you can do that. I can't, I'm not a good enough preacher to even think about or dream about doing that. God, this all depends on you. I desperately need you to move in this place. Make your words known in Jesus' name. We'll be careful to give you the praise. And everybody said, Amen. you may be seated this morning. The presence of the Lord. All right, we're, we're just looking ahead to, toward a new building. Those of you that are sitting there and listening to drips. Um, in the last service, we had a bulging tile that looked like we were going to experience the Noah movie all over again. And uh, one of our great servant guys, James, came forward and poked it, and then we had a downpour. So it's a lot better this time than it was uh, the first service. So as we jump in this morning to, we're going to take this by sections because we're going to hit about 25 verses of Mark chapter 14. Verses 1 and 2, here we go. Uh, I'll read out loud, you just follow along silently with me. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes, everybody say chief priests, chief priests. and scribes, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Everybody say, they're plotting to kill Jesus. Okay, how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Okay, now, I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Um, it's no longer just a, a rumor. It's undeniable. There is a conspiracy afoot. Um, unlike... Uh, the government denying involvement other than a lone gunman with JFK, uh, the attempt on various presidents and assassinations with um, John Wilkes Booth and Abraham Lincoln and who acted to carry that out. Uh, this is not just uh, one person who has it in for Jesus, but we see a collection of people that are colluding together. As we look to this, we'll actually see the sad news of one of Jesus' own twelve. Now, let, let me set this scene for you. Jerusalem is, is a stir. There, there, there's nowhere where you can go that you don't see people moving all over the place. I remember when I 
visited Beijing, China on a month-long missions trip, and I was up on the 18th floor of a high-rise hotel in Beijing, and I could look down and see a population that in 1996 of the city that had 12 million people and 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it was like looking down and just seeing ants crawling and moving around because people were everywhere. Dawn arises and you're starting to see light and there are people in courtyards all over the place with men doing Tai Chi and this kind of looks like slow motion martial arts. Jerusalem is ever bit as much a stir with movement and anticipation People all over the place expectant during this season because it's a high holy holiday. It is Passover. It is one of the three main times when faithful Jews move out of the countryside and they make a pilgrimage, they make a trek into Jerusalem in the third month, 50 days after that in Pentecost, and then the seventh month of the year. It's, it's, it's Passover around March or April. And the reason that that varies for us with our calendar is because we have a Gregorian calendar today. And as you know, it's 30 days, half September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31 except for February, which has 28. And we're always having to adjust our calendar every four years with an extra day. It's on leap year because you know that actually the day is not accurately 24 hours exactly. It's 24 hours and few seconds, a minute or so, and so after the adding up of four years, we have to keep the calendar adjusted with an extra day. Well, it gets offset with the Jewish calendar because the Jewish calendar is lunar. It is set by a 28-day cycle in terms of the revolving and the rotation of the moon around the earth as the earth rotates and it's revolving around the sun, okay? So we've got this lunar thing going, and every time there's a new moon, and then we've got a quarter and a half moon, and then a full moon, and then we start the cycle all over again. So Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, the three high holy feasts in the Jewish calendar, are all rotating on a 28-day a, a, a lunar calendar cycle. That's the reason Easter jumps around for us. This year it's the latest that I believe it's ever been in my lifetime, April the 20th. Okay? And we'll, we can have it as early as you know, mid-March, as late as like the third week of April. Okay? Um, it's, it's a stir because people have been in town for a few days. Passover to commemorate how God had delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt from the house of bondage. Pharaoh was an evil taskmaster that put the children of Israel, Israel meaning Jacob, whose name was changed from trickster, schemer, deceiver, kind of the used car salesman of the Old Testament. Now, those of you that sell cars, just go ahead and forgive me. It's not intended. Don't take it personally. But he's sort of the, the, the con man of the Old Testament. His name is Jacob, and he wrestles with the angel of the Lord in Genesis 28. God changes his name to Israel, prince, prevailer with God. And he has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the father of the 12 tribes. The dad's name is what now? From Jacob, it changes to, everybody say Israel. Israel. Okay, so there's this great drought. They end up in Egypt. Joseph has been lost for nigh unto 20 years now, almost. He's been gone. His dad thinks he's dead. God has been taking him on the back roads of the sovereign trail of God from the pit of his brothers, throwing him down and selling him into slavery, him ending up in Potiphar's house, being accused wrongly. He goes to prison in a 
just an amazing story of what some other prisoners said about Joseph's ability to be able to interpret dreams. He's brought out of prison. Pharaoh's had a dream that his enchanters, his magicians cannot answer. They can't, his wise men can't figure out. And so Pharaoh hears about this guy down in the dungeon who, who the, the warden of the prison loves. They all like him because the Bible says while Joseph was down there, the favor of the Lord was on him. So Joseph's brought out of prison. Pharaoh brings him up and Joseph interprets his dream. Pharaoh literally says, guess what, man? You're going to be second to nobody in the kingdom except for me. I'm going to make you prime minister of Egypt because you interpreted my dream of seven fat cows consuming and then seven lean cows eating up the seven fat cows. And it was about seven years of abundance and seven years of drought. And we saw that played out and Pharaoh dies and another one rises up and the next one forgets about the blessing of God on Israel, and he enslaves the people, and they're in slavery for 400 years. Everybody say 400 years. They cry out to God in the midst of the cruel punishment, the cruel treatment. And in the middle of that, God raises up a reluctant kind of guy who'd been raised in the palace, and his name is Moses. And some of you go, wait a minute, I thought you were preaching on Jesus and Mark, but yes, I am, because... Jesus is the fulfillment of what Moses was just a picture of, a type. He was going to be a deliverer of the children of Israel. God speaks to him in a burning bush and he sends him back to Egypt and he says, go tell Pharaoh, I am that I am. Let my people go. Moses and his brother Aaron march into Egypt and he literally kicks Pharaoh in his gods. Because everything about the river, the Nile River, they're worshiping. They're worshiping crocodiles and they're worshiping frogs and everything that has to do and is tied to the economy, the agricultural economy uh, of a riverbed kind of a society. And they're worshiping the Nile. They're worshiping the stuff that comes up out of it. And God causes a plague of everything they're worshiping to bring destruction to them. The last one, plague of the firstborn, ten plagues. You know the story. This story that I've just told you, every faithful Jew is gathered around in some place with children and with grandchildren and they're rehearsing this story in the hearing of their babies. And guys, that night God raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses and God had spoken to him and said, every man get a lamb for your house and as you bring that lamb into the house, everybody, you're, you're going to roast this lamb and you eat the whole lamb and you eat it standing up, ready to go because God's going to deliver you from this house of bondage. And when you kill the lamb to slay it before you roast it, you catch the blood of that lamb in a basin, and I want you to take this little common weed growing out of the walls called hyssop, and you're going to dip that hyssop in that basin of that lamb's blood, and you're going to strike it both ways over the lintel of the doorpost, one on both sides and one in the middle. And literally for 2,000 years, a whole nation has had built into their collective memory this idea of a lamb being slain and blood being shed and bloody crosses being painted over the doorpost, not coincidentally, it's three of them. Three crosses, one on both sides of the lintel of the doorpost, one in the middle, and it's, it's, it's children year after year, year after year, year after year. One generation dies, and they're telling the story every year at the high holy season of Passover, and another generation passes it to another, and another generation tells their children and their grandchildren, and it happens for centuries, and it happens for two millennia. 
The people of God have gathered faithfully all over Israel and they've moved into Jerusalem and they're ready to do what they've been doing for 2,000 years. They've been celebrating how God brought them out and delivered them from the power of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who we now know on this side of the covenant to be a symbol of the demonic power of Satan. And Egypt is the bondage we experience in the world of sin and slavery is what takes us down to the very bars and the prison of death. And our deliverer Moses came and he shed the blood of a lamb, applied it to the doorpost of every man in his house and they ate the lamb standing up ready to go. And God delivered their people out of Egypt by the blood. This is in the collective memory of every faithful Jew. The Hebrews are remembering it. They're gathered at this very time, this very season, while Chief priests and scribes are plotting to kill Jesus. Faithful Jews who love God with all their hearts are gathering in little small places in inns where they have paid to be able to stay because they're in a high holy season. And and you hear sheep all over Jerusalem because all of the sheep farmers, you remember, they a long time ago in the temple stopped making people, demanding them to bring their own sheep on the journeys because the sheep could be stolen, they could get injured. And you remember God demanded that you give the very best to the flock. Remember the story? And so they start buying and selling and trading in the temple. And Jesus has just gone in just a week or so prior. And out of the anger of God, he turns over the money changers' tables. And he says, you've made my father's house, which ought to be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves and robbers, rapscallions. Temporarily stops the sacrificing that's going on. They're heading to the high holy day where all this, the atmosphere is already beginning to smell with the pungent, acrid odor of blood that's running in a stream away from the great brazen altar. The city is, the city is just stirring with people. There are people that are mumbling, and screaming and hollering, partying and having a good time. Feast of Unleavened Bread is upon us and the high priests are plotting to kill Jesus. And there's a point that I want you to see here, the plot to kill Jesus, because this is a fascinating theological thing. Let me ask you a question this morning. Think with me. Do you think that when this thing happened that God leaned forward on His throne and He said, oh my goodness, look what they're about to do. Do you think that, that God sort of said, oh my, I didn't even account for that. Let me just look at your neighbor right now and say, neighbor, God never says oops. He knows what's happening in your life. And if you are His, He is working all things together for your good. Come on. As a matter of fact, we have to recognize that it was the sovereign hand and the plan of God that this thing happened. When we look at this from the other side, from the book of Revelation, the Bible says in chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. In the mind of God, He knew this was going to happen. As a matter of fact, God even designed that it would happen. But yet He used... He used not robots who were forced into doing it to carry out this script, but they were men who exercised their free will. They made the choice. Chief priests and scribes are plotting to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Fifty-three days after this happens, 
the Apostle Peter who on this night, this is Thursday before Good Friday when this is happening, he stands up on the day of Pentecost, Peter does, 53 days later, because three days later Jesus will have already been, he will have died, been buried, resurrected. Jesus stays 40 days teaching the disciples. He ascends after 40 days. He tells them, wait for 10 more in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. The promised Holy Spirit is coming. On the day of Pentecost when it happens, Peter walks into the streets and the same guy who denied Jesus 53 days prior stands up and preaches like a whole different man, possessed by God. Listen, and he says, You men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves know. I'm reading from Acts 2 verses 22 and 23 from the King James. He says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Do you hear those words? Everybody say, determined counsel and foreknowledge. Everybody say, God had His mind made up. The determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Listen to this. You have taken and by wicked hands you have crucified and slain. So on, on, on one hand, I want you to see the sovereignty of God on one side. On the other side, the responsibility of man. God ordered it. Man, even in his own will, still had the responsibility of carrying it out. We see a picture of the plan of God and the will of man. This is where we get stuck so many times in our prayers going, God, I know that you love me. You said you would provide for me. No word from God is void of power. No word that goes forth out of your mouth will return to you void. God, I'm feeling kind of void right now. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Where you wonder, you know, God, what's going on? Are you going to show up? I'm convinced that if we don't do something beyond what we can do in our own strength, we're not really doing the will of God. We're not really taking a risk of faith until we step out to do something beyond what I can finagle, what I can refinance, what I can manipulate myself. If I can do it, He'll let me do it. But I'll never be fulfilled until I realize He's called me to do something I cannot do in my own strength. Let's lead a people in a church and celebrates in the mall and... 30 acres that people said you'd never pay for. It's been paid for. 30 acres that they've said, I'll never get a building built out there. I guarantee you, we'll see a building built out there. I love this. The English Standard Version says it this way. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Everybody say definite plan. King James said determinate counsel. ESV says definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we see the plan of God and the will of man. I don't understand it. It's a mystery. But God has the ability to behind the scenes work all things together for my good. Come on somebody. Alright. Jesus wasn't surprised. Mark 13 we started last week and we had, we had the judgment gathering all over Israel and it's beginning to culminate storm clouds over Jerusalem. We preached a little bit long trying to bring some explanation and clarity to the destruction of the temple. But what was gathering over Israel and beginning to form a thunderhead over Jerusalem right now at this point has begun to focus right over Jesus' own head. They're plotting to kill Him. It's the will of God 
but some lawless men are going to carry it out. Look with me here to Mark chapter 14. Are you getting anything out of this this morning? Verse 3, here we go. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Everybody say expensive perfume. Say it. Expensive perfume. An alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memoriam, in memory of her. Now think about this. We have a Savior who so identifies with the broken condition of humanity. He, does not come, he doesn't come and announce himself in the regalia of King Herod. He doesn't make himself known and reveal his person and his mission and his ministry in the costly courts of any king anywhere. But everything that he's been doing has been among the least and the lowest. He's been injecting faith into the hopeless, the hapless, the homeless, the helpless. Every person who is at the bottom rung of society. This is always fascinates me because anytime you see the gospel preached in an unpenetrated area by the word of God, it's amazing how always those that desperately are in need are usually the ones who respond to the gospel first. That's the truth. It's because we know if we are living in a state of recognition of our need, and this has nothing to do with how fat your 401k is or your stock portfolio or how big your remuneration is from your job or what your plan is, you know, what's your 40-year plan, how you're going to be a millionaire by the time you hit 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever. It has nothing to do with all of that because you can have all the stuff and still know that in your heart, apart from Him, you are bankrupt. You desperately need God. I need Him this morning more than I've ever needed Him before. And I'm comfortable. I got, a, I got some stuff. I got, I, I'm thankful that I've got more than a couple of nickels to rub together to my name these days. But my confidence, my trust is not in any of that stuff. My trust is in Him and Him alone. That's the issue right there. It's amazing to me how you look at this story and we see the, the points. Go ahead and put up, if you would, for me, please, brothers. This is in the house of Bethany, or it's in, in Simon the leper's house. It is in the home of a guy who's experienced rejection every day of his life. To go into public, he had to veil himself and cry unclean. But he had the amazing testimony of Jesus. It's, it's like the amazing grace line, I once was, but now I'm. I once was a dead leper, but now I'm a, I'm a live man and I can converse, I can meet and talk to you because Jesus took my mess and he made it into a message. Come on, somebody. Simon the leper, Jesus goes to Bethany. Now, this is about one and three quarter to about two and... Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, about one and three quarters to about two and a quarter miles outside of Jerusalem. So this is like me leaving church and heading to Marion to my home, but making it about halfway. I would be in Bethany. I would be in Bethany probably about the time that I, that I got to 
probably the Sitgo station on, on 77. So it's just about a 45-minute walk. It's, it's easily attainable in a good little brisk walk. Uh, a, 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 an economy of people that are used to walking everywhere they go, they're, 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 they're on their feet, it's not a big deal. They're probably more in shape than we could even think about being. They can, they can just get out there, you know, tighten up their sandals, boom, they're there in 35, 40, 45 minutes. So Jerusalem is a buzz. We've got sheep everywhere. We're starting to smell blood. We've got all kinds of expectant, excited pilgrims who are all over the city. Jesus goes and heads out with some poor folks. Because something very dramatic is about to happen. A woman takes a year's worth of wages. Now think about this. Poverty level in the United States of America, if you're a single person, is right about $12,000. This woman takes a flask of very expensive, very costly perfume. Alabaster is like a very beautiful, smooth, geological kind of a stone. And so someone has made a box, one, one translation says, a flask of some kind. And, and it's not until she actually breaks it open in its fragility. She breaks it open. And the aroma of this begins to fill the whole room. And she pours it over Jesus' head. And she anoints his head. And Jesus later describes it as anointing him, preparing his body for burial. And there's always somebody in the crowd that no matter what you do, they're going to be critical of, well, you know, you, should have, you shouldn't have spent that money on that. You should have done such and such. You should have sold it and taken care of the poor. When you read the other Gospels, you find out who was behind that plea. And it was actually the treasurer of Jesus Christ Evangelism Incorporated. It was the treasurer. His name was Judas Iscariot. He was the treasurer of Jesus' outreach. He's the one who's complaining and he's going, why did you do this? You should have sold it. Because for him it's all about the money. We're going to see later how the enemy is going to enter the heart of Judas and he's going to sell Jesus out for just 30 pieces of silver. This woman does an amazing thing. She takes what she has accumulated probably over years because I can't stop right now and save a whole year's worth of wages. I have to, have to live. I have I've got house payments and I've got to pay taxes and, and I've got to keep gas in the car and food on the table and clothes on the, the, the backs of the children and, and thank God Drew's got a good job and he's off the payroll and oh hallelujah, thank you, glory to God. Hallelujah. But i got another one who's pulling more than she ever has before in college and car payment and insurance and like a lot of every teenager has probably and if you have one that hasn't then you are one blessed person. She's already wrecked one car and turned and had to get another one. So insurance goes up and dad just has to smile and say, thank you, God, that you're going to provide. Lord, give me grace so I don't kill these children. I can understand why some eat their infants. Lower species, mind you, okay. And in the middle of all this, I'm struggling and I'm wrestling and I'm working and I've got a couple of jobs and I'm trying to do what a good man does, just be a provider for the home and the family. And I'm thinking, there's no way I could, I could save that in a year. It's, it's taken this woman years to save a year's worth of wages. And she's at a poverty line anyway. So let me, let, me, let me make this practical for you so you can get your brain around it this morning. This is a year's worth of wages to a poverty line person. You know what that is for you? That's something that would be worth $12,000 and this really hotshot preacher comes to town and you like him so much that you go break it open and pour it over his head. 
Now that kind of puts it in a different light, doesn't it? You pull $12,000 out of your IRA. You, you, you go sell some stock, your 401k. Let me, let me just make it even a little more plain for you than that. There are people in this room who wish they had those kinds of circumstances, not been able to put that together yet. Maybe, maybe you've got a couple hundred dollars stashed somewhere and that's all you've been able to save. You take everything that you've got and you take it and you, you begin to just offer it as a sacrificial offering. Then there's someone that's right there while you're doing it because you've been convinced in your heart it's the thing you're supposed to do and somebody's going, well, just would you just look at that? That's just ridiculous. It just aggravates me. It's just frustrating that somebody would just go to such an extravagant waste. <laughs> See, until you can kind of get in the mood and read these stories, you don't really, you didn't even know that was in there, did you? <laughs> but that's the spirit that's behind it. It's the Grinch all over again. I'm teaching the Second World War right now in my history class that I teach at Mid-South Community College and we are in the middle of fascism rising and Hitler is starting to take over all of Europe and historically we saw something emerge in terms of the, the German word propaganda. And we started to see for the very first time battles not merely fought on the northern column or the eastern column or the western column or the southern column, those four columns, but it became known as the fifth column. Everybody say the fifth column. The fifth column is all about infiltration from the inside. It, it, it is about someone who is near to you and dear to you that you put your trust in and the enemy has gripped their heart and they turn and they betray. And it rips your heart out. And the one who's about to do that is the one who is instigating the protest. Why? We could have sold this and given it to the poor. Jesus sort of speaks to that whole idea that you know, we can, in our own strength, in government or philosophy or political ideology, that we can throw enough money. I remember in the 1960s growing up when LBJ introduced his great society. And over the next 30 years, they injected $30 billion into the U.S. economy. And LBJ went to Kentucky and he interviewed a coal miner sitting on a log out on his property. These were people who were so dirt poor, the poor folks called them poor. Now, that's the way my grandparents were. My mother growing up said, we were so poor, the poor people called us poor. LBJ goes out there and he interviews these people in a little coal mine in Kentucky holler way back in the backwoods of Kentucky. And he commits in the great society to, to put, inject into the economy $30 billion. We will destroy poverty in our lifetime. CNN arises in the 80s with cable news networks and all kinds of things and they go back 30 years later to mark the date when LBJ signed in the legislation regarding the Great Society and that same family was living in that same little shotgun shack in that same holler still just as impoverished as they ever were. He'd been interviewed by the President of the United States of America. We'd thrown money at the poor, thrown money at the poor, thrown money at the poor. I don't want to get political right now, but you know, there's some things you just keep doing, you just keep doing. Some folks like the way they're living and they're not going to change. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. Scripture doesn't mean we shouldn't fight poverty. We are battling a mentality of the Delta in Crittenden County. When I'm sitting here talking to you and saying, renew your minds, it, we, we are pulled down into the bog, into the pit 
of a mediocrity that exists in Crittenden County that unless the Spirit of Christ enlightens us and we lift up and we get hope that is above that, God wants to set us free. Come on, somebody. And the gospel isn't just about a nice home in the corner of glory. It is good news to the poor. It is the gospel to the poor. Why? If you will take the gospel, it will set you free from the habits that have put you in bondage to poverty. Now, don't, don't, don't run with that. I'm not preaching this radical prosperity kind of a, you know, you give God $1 and he'll give you back $100. That's kind of a, that's kind of a casino Christian. I'll leave that alone. But the fifth column is coming in. It's going to enter from the inside. It's going to infiltrate. It's the serpent slithering up into every man's garden quietly. Serpent in Genesis 3, the Hebrew word means whisperer. There was a perfume commercial a few years ago that said, if you want to get someone's attention, whisper. And the devil never comes shouting at you. He will whisper. That's, what, that's the literal meaning of the word serpent. He is a whisperer. Just a little doubt. Pull the faith away just a little bit. Make you question authority. Question the goodness of God. You know, if God, if you really were a Christian, you wouldn't struggle like that. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be in this mess. Don't you know this poor woman had to deal with that? But she knew in her heart that God had called her to do it. And Jesus said she will be remembered through time immemorial. Every time the gospel is preached, her story will be told. Two points quickly. You will never give to God what is His if you care what others think. Say that with me right now. Come on, here we read it. You will never give to God what is His if you care what others think. And this morning, this is not a great, well-crafted message to get you to give big in the offering. You know what I want you to give big? I want you to give your heart big to God. That's what I'm after right there. I'm after your heart. Come on. Second principle, her sacrifice is forever identified with the gospel. Sometimes God calls us to give sacrificially. Here comes the serpent. He's slithering up into the inside of Jesus' very own closest and dearest and nearest partners, his 12. Verse 14, chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity. Let me find the right time. Let me look. Let me find the right time when I can betray him. The snake has begun to slither. The fifth column. We've been invaded with Nazis from the inside. They're aware of our strategy. They know what's going on. We, 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 we have an, just an unbroken string of just military ridiculous things. That, that's just a whole comedy of errors and, until we figure it out that we've got an informant on the inside. We've got someone who's figuring out. They're hearing. They're, they're, they're strategizing. And I can only imagine Jesus, who is God, knew it was coming. But he, he from the beginning, knew that he was picking 12 and he had one dud in the bunch. Oh, if we could, and somehow I just can't get my head around this. I go, oh God, when I pour my life into somebody, when I invest in them, and this is the heartbreaking truth of being a pastor. Sometimes you can, you can help people, you can pay their electric bills, you can get down in the trenches and dig them up out of the human offal, the human poop of their existence in a marriage that's already gone to hell in the handbasket, and you can help them put it back together. You can build and rebuild and you can love and you can pour in oil and wine on their brokenness and their wounds and their hurts and then all of a sudden something happens. Just an everyday stinking 
ordinary offense. And guess what? If you live long enough, people will offend you. People, it just happens. It's life. People right now are on a high. Some folks new to this church, oh man, it's like a honeymoon. The preacher is just so great. Well, hang around long enough. If you do, I promise you I'll tick you off when it comes down to it sometime or another. And I don't even mean to. But sometimes, God help me. It breaks my heart. I sit at my house and I cry tears down on it. And I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but I, my heart breaks when I go, God, I was with these people in the trenches and now they've gotten offended over some stinking junior high school level piece of drama. And instead of doing what the Word says, go and talk to the person that you're offended, they get on the party line and tell everybody else about it. And, and then they turn and they betray and they leave and they're mouthing and, and I'm just going, God, I would like to lay hands on them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Suddenly I want to lay hands on them. I want to give them one of those Benny Hinn anointings. I got a little too real right there, I'm sorry. Look at this. If you have a price, even if it didn't advertise, Satan has a way to figure out what you'll sell for. Read it out loud. Satan is always ready. Come on, say it. Satan is always ready to buy you out. I can't believe sometimes investing and pouring into lives and then they turn and the betrayal, the sting. And I just have to get thick and I just have to go, okay, God, I, I don't want to forgive, but I'm telling you, God, I make the choice. Now, you're going to have to help my heart because I'm not in the mood. I am not in the mood. Now, I'm telling you, I'm ripping open my own heart and I'm showing you my own way of thinking. I have to go, God, you've got to help me. I thank you that you forgave me and I know I owe it to my stupid brother. And again, that's a little too real. Look at your neighbor and say, he really does keep it real around here. <laughs> That's how I have to pray. You know what? You know what? You need to stop all this religious, oh God. God in heaven. If it be thy will, would you grant a benevolent spirit of forgiveness in my heart? No, I don't talk like that. I go, God, I'm ticked off. You're going to have to help me. And I probably said worse than tick, too, anyway. <laughs> Satan is always ready to buy you out. The question is whether or not you're willing to sell. I don't know what came over me today. It's the second service anointing. It does it to me every time. I can preach and get out on time in the first service, but you people, it's just like you pull something out of me. I don't know. It's your fault. <laughs> Here we go. Let's hit it. On the first day of the unleavened bread, high holy day, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? My disciples. 
he will show you a large room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. Let's get it. Here we go. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Two things I want to grab. That whole passage is another whole sermon in itself, but I just want to quickly say, you see, first of all, you saw the plan of God and the will of man. Here I want you to see the provision of God and the preparation of man. Okay? God is sovereign. God provides. Man is responsible. Man must prepare. So too many of us are sitting around waiting for God to just zip open the heavens and give us our lunch. And he says, I want you to get up off of your blessed assurance some of you will get that in a minute. And I want you to go get you a job. He, the Lord has a Bruce Hornsby anointing from the 90s. Get a job. That's uh, a bad joke. Okay. Get a job. And that's through that arrangement that I will provide for you and I will zip open the heavens and pour down a blessing. And this is the same kind of crazy arrangement that just a week ago Jesus had said, I want you guys to go down to the city and you're going to see a cult tied at a straight, where, a place where two ways meet, a corner. And as soon as you start to untie the cult, the, the owner will say, hey, what are you doing with my animal? And all you need to say is the master has need of him and you bring him to me. And Jesus got the animal and rode into town, what's called the triumphant entry, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember when I preached this a few weeks ago in that section of scripture, I told you, think about it. You've left your keys in the car in the parking lot and all of a sudden you've got some pipes on it and, it's, and it starts up. And you get up and you run out there and you go, hey, what are you doing with my truck, dude? And he says, well, I'm going to go do the Lord's work. I'll get it back to you when I can. Now, how many of you would sit still? Well, somebody was hauling off this guy's dooley, okay? But yet the guy says, okay, fine, bring it back. The Lord already knew beforehand where the cult was, knew that the man's heart was ready to do what Jesus needed. We see the same thing happening again, the provision of God. God will give you instruction on how He's going to bless you, but there's still action for you to take. You have to get up and go prepare. Everybody say prepare. You have to work. I was in Bible school in North Carolina and there was a family that moved in and the wife was just a hard little worker. She had a regular job and she was cleaning houses by night trying to hold the family together, and the husband was sitting at home. He's a Bible school candidate, and he says, well, I'm living by faith. And the, the pastor and the deacon board went to go minister to him to tell him what living by faith meant. They had a Bruce Hornsby anointing on them too. Brother, you need to get a job. And so there's preparation. There's work that you have to do, and you see the provision of God and the preparation of man. God will provide for you, but He also is going to expect you to get out of the boat and take a step of faith on the water. We can spend all of our lives on our prayer bones on our knees and at some point God's going to say arise and take thy faith into thy hand and go do some work and I shall provide for thee, saith the Lord thy God. All right.
God used painful betrayal for his glory. I don't understand that. Help us, Lord, as believers when we've been wounded to do what Jesus was able to do. Finally, last section, I'm finished. Verses 23 through 25. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The story that faithful Jews are gathered on this very night, generationally passing this inspired oral tradition. Folks, 2,000 years ago, listen to me, Judah, listen to me, Israel, Benjamin, my grandchildren, raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There was a time 2,000 years ago God raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And they're telling this story the sheep are bleeding in J Jerusalem. They're bleating. <laughs> They're bleeding as they begin to be sacrificed. All the while, the one sacrificial lamb who started in eternity past came down to a center point in history where he would go to a hill that in the collective soul and the mind of millions of faithful Jews had seen it century after century, Passover after Passover, year after year. The faded marks of blood that had been applied behind the backside of the front door of every home. And now what had taken place is being fulfilled in history in the life of one man. But this morning I want to say to you, you can understand the connection between Moses and Jesus you can appreciate the history. You can revel in the theology. You can know the stuff. You can know the facts. You can know the principles. But unless you personally have come to the place where the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to the lintel of the doorpost of your heart, then you don't know the Lamb. And when the death angel passes over you, he won't pass over. Your life will not be spared. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 30, He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. He shall see death and the wrath of God abides on him already, right now. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, Romans 2 says you're sitting right there with a bank account and you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. God is telling every one of us to repent, to turn from our past I don't have the ability to do that in my own strength unless by His grace I reach out and take hold of what He did for me and for you 2,000 years ago.